The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, hello, and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I am John Howard, and I'm joined by my colleague, Tim Foster. Hi, John. And our special guest today, usually we say he knows he needs no introduction, but this one we're going to have a little bit of detail about Richard Schutz. He's been in gambling professionally, directly, or academically for over half a century. Uh, he was a born gambler, I think. He was a dealer at Paris. Uh, he was a CEO at casinos. Um, I think his master's thesis, Rich will correct me later on, but I think his master's thesis was on gaming. Um, I think he even worked for Sheldon Adelson, which is probably a story in itself, two-time member of the California Gambling Commission and a regulator in lots of places, including the Bahamas, which I, or I guess it's your license for investigations in the, in the Bahamas and in California uh, and elsewhere. So Richard Schutz, thank you very much for joining us. Our technologically challenged Capital Weekly Zoom call is going from Sacramento to central Pennsylvania right now. So Richard, welcome. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Just, just a few corrections. I wasn't in the Bahamas, I was in Bermuda. And not only did I have the opportunity to work for Mr. Adelson, but I had the opportunity to work for Mr. Wynn and, and Mr. Boyd and the Hughes organizations and a number of others. I've, I've, my resume clearly indicates that I'm getting old. So, <laughs> I have been so what's with well, first? What's with gambling? Why the big attraction to gambling? I mean, I like I like draw poker. Anything more complicated than draw poker? For me, is you know, Bill's the pot or seven card stud or something. I never win at those, but draw poker I seem to do pretty well at. But what's what's the big attraction for you for gambling? Well, to the industry, first of all, I mean, as a college job, I would I would go to college during the day, and at night I would um, go to work for Bill Hara and and deal cards at night, and it really paid well. You, you know, I mean, most college jobs are something like guarding a laundromat or. Or, or doing something that's not particularly lucrative. I was I was probably making more money than my professors, you know, and uh, and I did that to my undergraduate and 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 masters. And, and as an aside, it wasn't my, my master's thesis; it was a PhD dissertation that I spent two and a half years on, and that was on the evolution of the Nevada regulatory model. And that was an important model because there was only the first state to have casino gambling was the state of Nevada, and um, and that was the first regulatory system built up. And as gambling was exported across the United States, um, uh, so was regulation largely exported in the United States. As a matter of fact, when I was uh, for my license, going up for my license in Mississippi, one of the pages said, you send this document to the office in Carson City, Nevada. They had copied so much of the of the regulatory stuff they even copied the mailing address of. Uh, is of gambling Nevada's. as popular as it ever was? I mean, I know horse racing um, attendance is down, has been down for many many years. I think is still declining, but just gambling as a whole. Gambling is exploding. And it's exploding worldwide, you know, and and horse racing is one of those things that was quite popular when it was the only game in town. Now, the structure of horse racing is basically, you know, you make a bet and you wait 20 minutes to, to make another bet you, because, you know, they, they, that's just the nature of racing. And it was a very slow, relaxing thing. And so 
those would support things because if it's the only game in town, that's a great advantage. Mm -hmm. When you start getting casinos, and you, well, I noticed this back in the Midwest, is when you get casinos in the neighborhood where you have a transaction every in a slot machine every five or six or seven or 10 seconds, you know, there's just much more action. There's much more hype about it. You can have it 24 hours a day, you know, you, you, whereas horse racing has a limited season, both seasonally and also by time of day. Gambling, uh, casino gambling is just a better product. And it was casino gambling that really killed the horse racing industry. And they've tried to salvage that. You know, they went through the period of having racinos where the horse racing tracks could have casinos in them. And even in this state in Pennsylvania, there's a subsidy paid from the uh, from the casinos to the tracks to try and make them viable economic actors. Do you think internet gaming, uh, the way casino gambling killed the horse horse racing, would internet gaming, online gambling, sports betting, would that kill the casinos? There's a really robust debate on that. And um, the data in the United States has been pretty difficult to interpret because number one, it was heavily impacted by casino clothing closings and, you know, pandemic related events. And, and some of these guys, you know, they got two or three data points and they think they see a trend. It, it, I absolutely believe it changes the nature of thing. I think it expands the market, but I think it has a tendency to reduce the size of the market in New Jersey. What's interesting is employment's way down, you know, mm. Uh, employment's way down. Now, again, it's not just a simple thing of saying, well, it's all because of internet. You know, it's a, it, it's a less uh, labor intensive activity because um, a lot of the operators have found that, and I noticed this when I was staying in Vegas, you know, they eliminate cer certain services and whatnot during the pandemic and they haven't brought them back. And, and the operators sometimes, I think, are asking the question, do we really need this level of service, maybe we can get away with less to save on the cost side. They sometimes argue it's the supply of labor issue, which I think is disingenuous because that's a funny way of stating that we don't pay people enough. <laughs> you know, yeah. another way of saying it's not necessarily a supply side involving labor. It's oftentimes a, the inability or the unwillingness to, to pay a, a a wage that'll attract people, you know. I mean, you can fix supply issues real quickly with labor generally, raise the the wage rate. But these two issues on the um, these two ballot measures, uh, Proposition Twenty Six and Proposition Twenty Seven, both involve gaming. Twenty Six would require in person sports betting at casinos and four racetracks. Proposition Twenty Seven would allow online. Uh, online sports betting. So the real fundamental differences between the two, um, what, what's your take on, on what's going to happen with these? I think you'd mentioned they're going to go down. I, I think polling numbers show that. Um, what's your take on what, you know, the differences between the two and what the outlook is for? Well, the, the, the differences between the two, the, you know, I think there were either 17 or 18 tribes that it, it drove Proposition 26. And um, they were, of course, the richer tribes within the state. And they would favor a 
a brick and mortar solution, a retail solution for sports betting, because that doesn't distract from their already locational advantage. I mean, we have, I think, 109 or 110 tribal nations in the United States. Um, and only 64, 65 of those are compacted. You know, some don't have even uh, casinos. And um, so, you know, the, uh, having internet, I mean, when you, if it's drive-in, it's not going to disadvantage the bigger tribes or, or the, it's going to be the same disadvantage to the smaller tribes that may have, you know, a very small casino that can park 20 cars in it up in a fish camp someplace in, in the mountain. So, you know, brick and mortar maintains kind of the balance of power, if you will, between the different economic actors within the tribal sector. One of the things it was argued that concerned about internet applications of, of betting products was back in the days of where they were really aggressively pursuing having poker here, you know, internet poker. And, and some of the, and even the card rooms and a lot of the bigger players then were concerned that what would happen is, is and, and I remember this discussion, this was a long time ago, and, and it might sound funny, but people were speculating that Google might enter the poker space, you, you know, if it's if, if it's because there's a lot of money in it, potentially, and that Google would go up to find some tribe just in the, in the middle of nowhere that had no economic base really to draw upon and spend a billion dollars to own the market, you know, and, and it's a little bit of the same concern with having internet net there now with tr tribal participation, you know, it changes that balance of power that has been established by locational advantage of the bigger tribes. When I say the bigger tribes, I'm not talking about population. I'm talking about their financial wherewithal. Got any idea what the, <clears throat> excuse me, what the size of the market is? Uh, well, it always seems to get overestimated whenever we talk about this. And it, it's one of the conflicting, one of the issues that always gets down. How much money out there is really a, at play if we say if we had online gaming? sports betting in California. I'm not going to get in <laughs> to, to, to that too much. Let, let me tell you one, as I've watched internet sports and internet games roll out, they have almost in all instances when they're contemplating it been offered with higher estimates than the reality turned out to be the case. You know, the, the they have a tendency to miss and they have a tendency to miss high and oftentimes by a lot. Yeah. Um, look, California has always been a big deal in gambling. Um, you know, I once did a story that was called uh, just Richard. And it talked about when I was in California, I was, and they were contemplating having poker there. I was the most popular person in the planet because anybody that offered poker wanted to talk to me because they thought I had, yeah, I mean, they knew I had some influence within the state because I was one of the few people in both regulation and government that had any understanding of, of gambling. And, um, and and these guys all wanted to be my buddy. After I left and went to Bermuda, I became just Richard again. <laughs> again. But California has the fifth largest gross domestic product in the world. You know, people are fascinated all the discussion we've had of the United Kingdom. California's gross domestic product exceeds that of the United Kingdom by about $600 billion, you know, 
people forget how big that state is. It has 39 million um, plus people, you know, and, and, and on and on, 200 million tourists a year and stuff like that. I used to run, I used to oversee the largest sports book in Las Vegas back in the day, so to speak. And one of the things that you understand is the sports betting business is a low margin business. It doesn't generate a lot of money. So one of the things that I think everybody needs to understand, especially with respect to those out of state interests who wanted to come in and offer internet gambling, is that was the camel's nose in the tent. Okay, they don't want to have the rest of their life be offering sports betting in California. They want to be offering iGaming. But I believe, and, and I'm convinced, and, and no one's challenged me on this, and I talk about it at conferences and whatnot because I speak quite often, but everybody wanted, of the outer state interest, they wanted iGaming. Okay, they wanted to be off, able to offer you know, you know, blackjack and slots and all those products over the internet, over the phone. And so that was the goal. And that would be a profitable measure. Sports betting, especially the way, you know, there's very few people now in the sports betting space that are making money in the United States. And, and they, a lot of them argue that they're being, um, the promotions they're doing are, are just ridiculous. You know, I don't bet but in Pennsylvania, I was um, making bets on the internet that would had a certainty of having a return, if you will. And um, because of the promotion and the advertising, we make the joke in Pennsylvania and a lot of other states and California hasn't gone through this. But if you legalize this stuff, we make the joke that I was watching the casino or the iGaming ads the other day and I was interrupted by the news, you know, the spend on these things to try and secure market, market dominance and market share is unbelievable. So most of these firms are not making money and they're not making money on sports. Now they have this vision that, you know, they'll be market, they'll get these great databases, they'll have these great brands, they'll get sports betting in, people will get familiar with them, they'll be able to contribute into the political system, hire the best lobby, you know, that routine. And lo and behold, they'll be able to convince the people to have iGaming down the road. You know, that uh, was the plan, I believe. You know, we, a few years ago when, when iPoker, when the tribes offering iPoker uh, was a discussion, it was sort of an ongoing discussion over a number of years. And we had some conferences on it. We covered it fairly frequently at one point. And you were at our conferences and spoke and, right. and we were interviewing you. And that all came to naught, you know, that, that was drawn out for years and years and never happened. Uh, but it really was interesting because it seemed almost inevitable, at least according to the discussions, people seem to think that that was going to happen. And, and yeah. it seems to me that the perception of gaming and gambling has really changed tremendously over the last say 40 years. You know, I remember when they made the lottery legal here in California, that was an argument. And I, I can't imagine anybody today saying that, you know, we shouldn't have a lottery and the, uh, the ballot measure that allowed Indian gaming here. Uh, I think it was, you know, comfortably successful, but it wasn't a gimme. And I'm wondering, you know, you've been doing this now for, for 52 years. And I'm wondering, can you talk about the, 
the way that the public perception of gaming and gambling has changed and where you see it going? Like where in 25, 30 years, are there going to be norms that would be shocking to us as far as the average person gaming? I'm just curious if you can put this all in perspective for us. <clears throat> I, um, when, when I left uh, the University of Utah, having worked on my PhD there, I, I went and took a teaching job and, um, and I discovered that a college professor makes about half of what a dice dealer makes, you know, and and so I uh, <laughs> I left skid marks out of academia and, and and went headed back to Reno and then ended up in Las Vegas, um, and and about twenty years later, after I'd been an executive, you know, throughout a number of different properties in Las Vegas, I went up to visit my mother and her her elderly friends, and one of the women came up and she goes. Richard, I understand you're a college professor. You know, my mother could not bring herself to tell her friends that I was uh, in the gambling. I was a casino executive because, you know, it's kind of a tainted um, industry. It was for a long time and, and for good reason. You know, during the 50s and 60s, there was a heavy influence of organized crime, you know, and through the development of sound regulatory practices, a lot of that's been eradicated you know so i think that's what helped and and you know economics necessity has driven gambling nevada had gambling was the first because i couldn't have anything else you know i mean can you imagine you can't grow anything in vegas i mean no natural resources and, 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 and so you know they gambling needed air conditioning to be invented before las vegas could even happen you know and, and an internet highway system but then the next person that opened was New Jersey. And New Jersey had a huge problem in Atlantic City. You know, it had been a great resort community and, and it was just in despair. And, and how do you fix those? Well, somebody came up with the notion of gambling. So gambling fixed that. And then on and on and on. It began to domino beyond that because it had such fiscal relief to many jurisdictions. And it was a development tool and things of that sort could increase tourism and on and on. And that's not just true in the U.S. That's true worldwide. You know, if you look at Macau and Singapore and a lot of those places and across Europe. So, you, you know, it, it just spread. And I think people got more accustomed to it. You know, there haven't been any real major scandals of, to, to note um, and, and things like that. So I think it's just a matter of consumer acceptance through time as the product became more common. There's also been uh, in in California anyway. Uh, there's also been a, a tendency to offer gambling proposals to the public that are linked to, uh, you know, a, a perceived public good. In 1984, the lottery initiative, it, it was approved by voters. It its main message, I well remember, was it would provide money for education. Which and, and you will note that that, and I think this is one of the reasons that the Proposition 27 is, and we can talk about that, you, you know, upside down on the numbers that right now, if you look at the, the contribution that the lottery makes to the educational system of the state of California is well under 2%, you know, yeah. California, you know, they played that game against California at one time. And, 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 and there is a certain social memory. And, and that's, well, that's what, what I'm wondering if there's a certain amount of, cynicism among the voters or, you know, like you mentioned, social memory, both of these initiatives, 26 sets up money for education. It's part of that, at least in the ballot description I read. And 27 has money set aside 
that would offer for housing and homelessness, but it just they they just seem like they're trying to get around the public's basic aversion to gaming, I guess. I'm not quite sure why they feel why the need is out there for people who put together ballot measures to link that proposal with something that would be a, ben, a, a public benefit. I mean, we all want money for housing and homeless to fight homelessness, and we want more money for education. I think most people do. Um, you know, when I started in the casino business, there was only gambling in Nevada, and I, and I worked there. And so I followed it. You know, I worked in Atlantic City, and I worked in Minnesota, and we was involved in projects in Mississippi. And in all of those states, when they justify it, there was kind of a formula. Money's going to go to education. Money's going to go to cops, you know, you know, because the cops were often thinking, oh, God, this is going to be a crime nightmare. <laughs> we're going to have to work more, you know, so we'll give you some more money and stuff like that. I, I think in California, one difference between 26 and 27 was I think people understood that 26 was land based. You know, I think there's a level of comfort with the land based product as it now exists in in California. I don't think there's that same level of comfort with being able to gamble over your phone. But I saw one, you know, they were playing ad, they have a series of ads on YouTube and, and the whole ad was like, it was, you didn't know it was a gambling ad. I mean, you're exactly right in your point. You didn't know it was a gambling ad because it seemed to be all about curing homelessness. And, and, you know, when I worked for, when I was a consultant to, Roderick Wright and the GO committee, which was the gambling committee uh, for the Senate. He, when I first started talking one day, he said, where do you think gambling falls on the top 25, on the list of the top 25 things of importance to the state of California? I said, I don't know where it falls. He says, it doesn't. <laughs> you know, it's not on that list, you know? So, so I think that was, you know, the, the gambling industry lives in this bubble sometimes, this echo chamber. And I don't think they had any understanding what they were getting into when they came to California, especially the outside firms. Look, the tribes get this state, you know, they have are, are masterful at the uh, utilizing the political uh, capital that they have available to them and stuff like that. But these outside operators in 27, I don't think they had any idea and, and to spend what they spent to get the terrible results that they've gotten really indicates that um, someone was fed something <laughs> and they and they took it hook, line, and sinker and, and they shouldn't have. You know, they you know, just I, didn't understand. One time we were talking to a person from one of the tribes and the question came up, why do the tribes, are they so invested in California politics? Because tribal entities are their own nations, really they're uh, heads of state in their own way. And he was very blunt. He said, hey, unlike every other business in California, we can't move. So it's yeah. really in our interest to have California function efficiently and to have the state run well because we're stuck here. And I, I've always remembered that. And I, it's, it's very, uh, I thought it was a very salient point in anything when you're looking at the tribal, uh, the moves that the tribes make vis-a-vis -vis California politics, you always have to keep in mind that unlike any anyone else, they can't really go anywhere. Well, and, 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 and there's another point, there's two points I want to add to that is, is one is a gambling, like where I, where I started working in corporate gambling, or actually it, it was even smaller than that, you know, in, in the casinos in Vegas and stuff like that, that was a 
a commercial enterprise, you know, and and um, and, and and basically that was about making money for guys like me, you know, that that's what it was about. And then I, I took a job in Minnesota, which was in the tribal world. And, and we came across a tribe that 65 percent of that population existed below federally established poverty levels, you know. Um, they had a um, life expectancy for the male population of 44 years, and that 44 years was driven by, you know, poor access to mental, uh, uh, medical services, terrible abuse of alcohol, terrible abuse of drugs, and doing stupid things on, you know, like driving cars and playing with guns and stuff on drugs. And, and you know, two years after we built the casino in conjunction with the tribe, they were able to provide medical uh, services for their tribal population. Everybody in the tribe that wanted to work had a job. They built childcare facilities. They had senior housing. They built a spiritual center. They were able to remove a leaded water system that was killing people and acquire tribal lands. And, and that's kind of the statistical array of that stuff. I was walking across the casino one day and there was this tribal woman dealing cards and and I said, what is this casino? And, and the game was dead. So I said, what does this casino mean to you? And, and she said, for the first time in my life, I can allow my children to dream of an education. And, and, and it was then that it struck me that this was fundamentally different than working at a casino in Vegas. You know, Vegas is a commercial enterprise where we were trying to make money as much as we possibly could. In the tribal world, it's different. And it's nation building for that tribe. So, so you're right. If they lose what they've got now, they don't have a lot of different options. You know, they know what it was like. And uh, yeah, it's, it is very different, you know. Well, uh, Richard, whatever happens with these initiatives, <clears throat> say if they both go down, um, what, what do you think the next step is this? Uh, the next step will be in this. Are we going to be looking at, I don't know, a ballot initiative every two years? Are we going to be looking down the future of never ending array of proposals on gaming or, or not. Do you have any sense of that? Well, yeah, and I heard a lot of these people speaking, a lot of the, the heads of the big companies, not the tribes. I mean, the tribes have made the point that uh, yeah. tribes are pissed, <laughs> you know, to, to, to kind of get to the essence of it. And, and they're not going to be in a mood for a while to sit down with these other companies and let's make a deal. I, I think, you know, Mark McCarl was quite clear last week in Las Vegas that, you know, if we need some technology, we'll call you and buy it from you, 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 <laughs> you know, kind of, uh, you, you know, because. Uh, so, um, you know, I saw you tweet the other day. Um, Never underestimate the the power of the tribes in California. You know, and, and I, I did an interview with the Las Vegas Review Journal, and I had just a wonderful soundbite that you guys would love. I said, "What every one of these out-of-state interests that were involved in supporting uh, Measure 27 should do is go to a tattoo parlor and get tattooed on their bodies." somewhere so they'll see it regularly i will never underestimate the tribes in california again you know <laughs> i mean and, and they should have known that you know this these guys the 27 people and and, and this is descriptive i you, you know they suffer an element of arrogance and ignorance and that's a terribly damaging and dangerous combinations 
you know, they, they, they were spouting off three or four days after pretty much everyone had accepted this is toast this, this year. Well, we're going to be back. We're going to be back. And I'm always fascinated with companies that, you know, they, they get the ship. My attitude is in business, the captain that got the ship on the rocks probably isn't the best person to get it off the rocks, you know? And, and I also predict, and there was another tweet that I like, which was, they're going to now come out and say, well, this was part of our long run strategy and we really didn't lose. And we're sorry we pissed off half a billion dollars, you know, you know, and stuff like that. But it's, um, you, you know, the 27 people didn't understand the state they were coming into. They didn't understand the power of the tribes. They didn't understand, you know, over 75% of the population in the tribal casinos is not tribal people. You know, these people have integrated within their communities and whatnot, you know, they have some credibility and credence. Um, they, you know, for some reason, they thought that this homeless positioning was the magic bullet that was going to, I mean, it was just, just stupid. And they should have looked at the fact that of the six tribal based gambling propositions that have existed over the years tribes won five you know i was working for mr Wynn in the late um well uh, 99 and 2000 back when the initial you know mr Wynn was going to stop the tribes from having gambling here and he raised a bunch of money and stuff like that now i was working for him but i was working for him on a mississippi project and it was fascinating watching this the nevada interest got their head handed to them you know they lost that major I think the tribes got 66 or 65% of the vote, you know, and, and, and anybody that underestimates the tribes is a fool, you know, you know? maybe parenthetically, this is full disclosures be a good time to mention it. Um, uh, one of our board members is uh, a key member of TASM, the tribal Alliance of sovereign right. Indian nations. And for years we've known him, that's Jacob and we've taken Mejia and we've known Linval Buena and, um, we've long known them and they've long supported us. Uh, they have absolutely nothing to do with this podcast in terms of questions we ask, good, bad, and indifferent, and whatever anybody says. And that's our, you know, that's us, totally us, and it's all on us. Well, I just well, wanted let to, me add that. to I that. I mentioned that earlier, actually. <laughs> I better mention let it before me we mention something, because I consider a great many tribal people as friends within the state of California, and Jacob's one of them. And I think Lynn Valbueno is a, a, just an incredible leader of the San Manuel. I have no uh, financial relationships with any tribes in California. Just, you know. Well, we would like to have huge financial relationships, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, but we're still a very small, uh, punch above our weight, nonprofit, Capital Weekly Open California. There you go. I should have a boilerplate of that written down and we could do it. <laughs> I think that was actually, John, you did a great job. We probably should have put that at the, at the head of the, at the head of the thing, I thought, head yeah. of the thing, but you know, for this is a bonus for people who stuck it out to the bitter end. The people who are waiting <laughs> to find out who had the worst week, you know, they're <laughs> bonus. Hey Richard, one last question. Uh, uh, looking back over, over the years, uh, you have any regrets about being basically a professional gambler or a gambling consultant? Would you have liked no. to have gone into astronomy or, you know, something else? No, I, I don't. Look, I've, I've been able to teach in China. I've been able to teach in Switzerland. You know, I've been able to live in Bermuda, China, Switzerland. I've been able to move around the world. I've, I've had the opportunity to just experience this terribly interesting and unusual business. Um, 
you know, I right now I probably I think I'm the most read author in the in the North America on gambling matters. You know, I, I and I enjoy writing and um, no, I, uh, I I you know I just found an industry I loved. You know, from day one. I mean, it was just it was crazy. You know, cool. I mean, I, they always say that one of my expressions is gambling used to be about organized crime and now it's just totally unorganized crime. <laughs> you know, and there's some truth to that. You know, the corporations are kind of unorganized crime in, in their own special way. But going back to the politicians, um, you know, the people, and I want to make this point because it's important that the people of California understand this, the legislators fight to get on these gambling committees and they fight to get on these gambling committees because they are such incredibly good platforms by which to raise money. You know, 30% of the members of the legislature are either on the house or Senate gambling committees, you know, and, 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 and my only problem with that is, is that sometimes no one's paying them money and lobbying heavily for better regulation or more safeguards with respect sure. to problem yeah. gambling and stuff like that. Whereas other people are throwing huge amounts of cash in them to secure uh, things that may not necessarily be in the public good, but are in certain individuals good. So that, that's, you know, people need to understand how that legislature works with respect to gambling and stuff like that. I think, you know, Those a lot of the by the way, Whoops. The, the I just set off the dog alarm. I, <laughs> well, those GO committees, a reporter, an old friend of mine, used to call them the juice committees. He <laughs> yeah. actually went to a couple of uh, hearings where uh, I think it was Senate GO would approve some, you know, they covered gambling, booze, horse racing, and the National Guard. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure how they got all those together, but uh, every time they did a bill, he would sit up in the audience and yell out, juice, juice, and then he'd sit <laughs> down again. <laughs> no, it's, it, yeah, it's, um, uh, you know, I'm, was oftentimes of the thought that they had hold a, I mean, they weren't holding some hearings about some things they should have had held hearings about. You, you know, it's it's no secret that one segment in that state was having a real problem with a lot of money laundering raids on their properties. You know, that was going up and down the state, and and they should have the, you know, the the state should have started holding hearings then. You know, if there were more. Uh, violations of raids for gambling operations in the state of California than the rest of the country wow. combined, you know, and, and that should have been addressed by the legislature, but they want to talk about let's legalize this or let's allow you to do this. And, and that's great platforms to raise money. Yeah. That sounds like a uh, part two of an, of a continuing podcast, which we'll talk about in the future. So Richard, I can go hours, my <laughs> Richard, Richard, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great. And Thank now you. we're going to turn to a, a segment we call Who Had the Worst Week in California Politics? The Worst Week. Worst Week. Worst Week. Richard, you may not want to participate. You may want to bail out. Basically, Tim and I tried to come up with somebody. This time we, uh, we came up with Kevin DeLeon, the L.A. City Council member, <laughs> whose resignation has been demanded by, it seems like, everybody in LA, at least it's an uh, activist type. And he's also been stripped uh, stripped earlier in the week of his committee assignment. So we're going to talk about that. You're welcome to stay on and chat if you like, or 
I, I think I'll uh, I, I think I will leave. I'm kind of of the notion that, that the politician is the kind of person that if he moves in next door, your lawn's going to die. So I'm going <laughs> to yeah, escape from the de- distinct political okay, well, conversation. It's a pleasure. Track me down later. Yeah, if you we want. definitely, definitely okay, will. Then. So we really appreciate it. Adios, Richard. Take care. And Thanks, you guys Richard. provide a very valuable service to that state, you know. Well, we Thanks. can fix that too. So that's not yeah. a problem. Thanks, okay, Richard. Doc. Bye, gentlemen. See you later. Yep. Take care. So, John, I have to agree with you. Uh, Kevin DeLeon does seem like the person that's the standout week, partly because no one else had a particularly bad week. I will say what's interesting is uh, Bill Cedillo, by the nature of the fact that he really hasn't said anything, he's kind of kept his head down and has let uh, DeLeon take the slings and arrows here. And then also he is, of course, not going to be in office. Uh, He's already he's already out, you know, his. He'll be what, what are the options? Hey, Tim, we talked about it before, but what you'd mentioned some uh, possibilities for De Leon, the advantages of sticking it out through November into January. What? How does that play out? You know what? And that's something that uh, one of our sources had mentioned is that they, you know, because we were asking, why is, does De Leon really think he can survive this? And to be fair, maybe he does. Maybe he just thinks like, hey, Ralph Northam survived a a blackface incident in sure. Virginia. And maybe I can just kind of like stick it out here and, and go for another couple of years. Uh, so maybe that is his thought, but then there's also, I'm not familiar with this really, but there, I guess there are some perks of being on the city council that kick in after a certain amount of time. And if he sticks it out through, I think the end of November, it gets to one level and, you know, maybe I'm, again, I'm, I'm repeating something I have not confirmed, but that he may be, uh, his pension may be different if he could stick it out for a little bit longer. Uh-huh. And uh, that would make sense to me. I don't, I can't say that that is 100% true. We need to, should have called Rob Krinky, who would probably be able to confirm all this for us. But, uh, but yeah, from what I understand, he may, he may be eligible for more benefits uh, as a city council person by hanging out a little bit longer. Uh, but that is pure random speculation, which is what we're best at. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the L.A. Council, uh, with its 15 members, uh, they have committees, obviously various committees that focus on various issues and specific issues. He was stripped, as I understand it, uh, he was stripped of his committee assignments. The acting city council president did that. So with no committee assignments, he basically, his function there would be to, to uh, vote in the equivalent of what the legislature has, floor votes, the final vote. However, the council votes in toto, that would be his only function there. He wouldn't be contributing to committee assi- to committee actions, to hearings, to calling information. Seems like he's in a pretty sterile environment now. And I'm not quite sure. It seems like that doesn't bother him particularly. Maybe bothers him, but he's going to stick it out anyway. I, but functionally, he seems to be somewhat neutered right now, which may be the object, is the object of people, you know, demonstrating yeah. against him. Well, and when you say demonstrating, I think there are people outside of his house every day, yeah. uh, you know, calling for him to leave. I saw that Magic Johnson had, had called for him to step down. Um, of course, Biden, you know, had asked for him to step down last week. So he's in a very difficult position. Uh, but, you know, I will say that Kevin DeLeon has been around a long time. He was yeah. up here in Sacramento for a long time. And he, you know, He's not somebody who's going to be pushed around, but at a certain point, you do have to wonder uh, where where he's going to, you know, cut 
cut off? Will he just continue to take this abuse be, or, or will he finally decide that this is not something that he's actually ultimately going to be able to win? I think I really wonder, I saw people mentioning that they're already starting to look at doing a recall, which I think someone on Twitter said, I think they would need to get 21,000 signatures to, uh, to trigger a recall in, in that district. So, um, you know, I don't know. I, I mean, my gut feeling is that if he does try to stick it out, they will try to recall him. I don't know whether that would be successful, but I would suspect that that there will be a legitimate effort to get him out of there because he does seem to have really pissed off a significant number of his constituents. Fair enough. Uh, Tim, Foster, Tim Foster, thank you very much. Thanks, John. Um, it's John Howard saying we will talk to you next time around. Take care. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.